0: Today's episode of 1.37 p.m. is presented by Belvedere Vodka. Your steak is from an organic farm in Argentina, and your suit is from a bespoke tailor in Rome. It's time you knew exactly where your vodka comes from, too. The Lakeside Bartajac Farm and Forested Smogory Farm have been handpicked to create Belvedere's new single estate rye series, where the climate, soil, and terrain, a combo known as terroir, Create completely different taste profiles. Smogori Forest is made from rye grown on an estate deep in the woods of western Poland, where long summers and a pristine environment help develop a bold, savory vodka. The Lake Bartajak is more subtle and delicate, just like the glacial waters in northern Poland's Lake District. Belvedere vodka—it's a quality choice. Drinking responsibly is too.
1: 7 pm live from the bar cart a look into the
0: style culture, strength and grind of the modern day man Welcome to 137 p.m live from the bar cart I'm JJ McCarvy senior editor for the Grind, and I'm Brian
1: Anthony Hernandez senior editor for the Culture and on our first episode we have none other than restaurant tour extraordinaire Danny Meyer. I think the feeling I wish
2: I had not felt was shame. I think shame is a completely non-productive feeling to feel. I was ashamed that my dad, who I've looked up to, had a business that went out of business Mm -hmm. and that a whole lot of people lost their jobs. And I feel like what I've done with that shame over all these years is realize, number one, it's not mine, it's his. And number two, I'm going to build a a business that's based on the strongest possible
3: foundation.
0: And I spoke with podcast legend Jordan Harbinger, previously from The Art of Charm, and is currently doing his own thing with the Jordan Harbinger Show.
3: The amicable split didn't happen, so I have to start my show over again. And it actually, four months later, turned out to be the best thing that ever happened to me. And so I really... I'm thankful that I got to leave. The way that it happened was not good. However, thats I think that's not only part of life, but it's part of being reborn in a way, business-wise. But Actually, Brian,
0: first, let's talk about what the hell 137 p.m. even is. Well, 1.37 p.m., we're going to be
1: looking at everything through the lifestyle of entrepreneurship, which means we're looking at the people who are dominating in their respective fields, that's but right. also have side hustles.
0: And Jordan Harbinger fits that uh, perfectly, right? He had to rebuild his business after a really bad breakup. Um, And we also talked about redefining masculinity in 2018. I'm excited to hear that. Let's roll it. Jordan, you left a career as a Wall Street attorney to produce podcasts, first The Art of Charm and now The Jordan Harbinger Show, to teach this same audience the social skills required along this journey. So first tell me, what motivated you to make such a big move, which was way before uh, the so-called podcast renaissance that we're seeing now?
3: Oh yeah, yeah. I started doing podcasts in 2006. And the way that it started for me was I was interning and, and taking a job as a Wall Street attorney. So I was out in New York with you guys are. And I was like, okay, When I was in high school, I could kind of fake my way through school because I I wasn't a genius or anything, but I was smart enough to cram before a quiz or a test and be fine. Then I got to college, and I realized, wow, everyone's really smart. So I didn't have a choice but to outwork everyone, so I had to develop a hustle work ethic. Instead of a leaning on my natural talents or whatever, smarts, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. And it wasn't it wasn't too hard to outwork people in college because everybody was drinking. So I was just like, well, if I limit <laughs> my drinking to three nights a week, I'll be right. really far ahead of everyone. If I'm just right?
0: sober, then I'm, I'll be smart.
3: <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. Something like that. And then when I got to Wall Street, it was like, oh, wait a minute everyone's smart, everyone's working 20 hours a day, 7 days a week. We are, you know, 16 hours a day, whatever. We're in tr- I'm in trouble. I'm going to lose my competitive advantage. And so what I did is I realized that I was going to get fired probably, and mm. I consulted one of the partners and I said, "Look, I want to figure out how to bring in business because if I can figure out how to bring in business, I'll be valuable to the firm." even if I'm not the smartest lawyer, even if I'm not able to outwork everybody for, you know, work 90 hours a week my whole life. And he goes, yeah, that's a good way to do that. What you gotta do is create relationships and make connections. And I was like, cool, teach me how to do that. And it, the advice he gave me was was g- garbage, right? It was like, mm. put yourself out there, just be cool. And I'm like, you know, if it were that easy, everybody would right. put themselves out there and just be cool. Right. Here's that's the cl- problem. Clearly more I don't to know what that means. That. Yeah. Yeah, there's more to it than that. And so I started taking these classes like Dale Carnegie and stuff. And those classes have their place, but the advice they gave me was all like, well, you look them in the eye and you have a firm handshake. And I'm like, uh, <laughs> if someone doesn't freaking like you, it's not because you broke eye contact two yeah. milliseconds earlier. Like, oh, his handshake wasn't firm enough. You know, like, no, man. If yeah. I'm not giving somebody a million-dollar piece of business, it's not because their handshake was, like, too short. You know, yeah. come on. So yeah. I had to figure this stuff out myself, and that's what got me going out, trying nonverbal communications techniques, learning persuasion, learning influence, learning everything about verbal and nonverbal communication that I could, and trying it in the real world. Going out six nights a week, trying this stuff, and people were interested in learning that. So I was burning conversations to CDs that I was ha- burning these conversations I was having with friends of mine mm-hmm. to CDs and giving them to people as gifts and, and people would listen to them and hand them out. And then eventually I was like, I'm so sick of carrying CDs in my pocket at the yeah. bar, this is ridiculous. <laughs> so my, my friend told me about podcasting, started uploading the conversations we were having about body language, nonverbal communication, persuasion, influence, et cetera, and networking, started uploading those to the internet and the the show was born. And that was, yeah, it was 11 and a half years ago.
0: Wow, so you, you're uh, an OG in the game.
3: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Something like that. Sure. Well, uh, what I like about, um, you know, what, what you talk about and what you give your uh, listeners advice on is um, the fact that a lot of, a lot of them are trying to get to this idea of what it means to be emotional and emotionally intelligent and what it means to present yourself as vulnerable, right. And authentic, but also uh, like Competent and like good at networking and good at like all these like professional skills as well, and I do think um, you know a, a lot of young guys today, um, especially like in their late teens and early twenties, they they want to value those the the and embody those traits. You know, for example, I was I listened to a recent episode of your show. And I was struck when a 17 year old um, rode in and he was asking you advice for like mending his relationship with his younger sister, you know, before he went off to college. And it seemed like you were really kind of, you know, taken aback by his emotional maturity, too. Um, so how much do you think like the this traditional definition of like manhood and like what it means to be like strong and, you know, um, and how you present yourself? How much do you think that's changing and what do you think is driving that?
3: So I think that the image of what it means to be a man or what it means to be even a a young man especially has been sort of hijacked by a lot of marketers. And this isn't necessarily the marketers being evil and trying to reprogram us or something like that. It's just based on the fact that for a while men had a lack of role models and then for a while we had bad role models and now everyone's like, what am I even, where are the, what role models do I look at? So we get these these negative role models that are doing bad things. I don't want to name any names, but then we also have these marketers that are doing things that are teaching guys what I think are unhelpful habits. So you get these guys that are like, just be alpha or something. It's like, mm. no, being alpha is not how you end up with a good woman. It's not how you end up with a good circle of friends. Yeah. That's a false concept that's taken from, Evolutionary biology, and then bastardized in this weird way, and so you have these guys who've been kind of maybe they haven't gotten what they wanted out of life, so they got picked on a little bit or something, mm-hmm. or they they were maybe a pushover or something at some point in their life. So instead of going, oh, I have to learn how to co- be more cooperative and get along with people and stand up for myself, they go now I have to learn how to be a jerk. I got That's it. You can tell these guys; I can see them a mile away because. When they're when they think no one's looking, yeah, they have their normal sort of shrunk submissive body language. and then when they think people are looking, they poke up their puff chest. up and yeah they poke yeah. up and they take up like <laughs> three chairs and they're like, yeah, I'll have a I'll have a beer bro yeah. get, like the,
0: they, they, get, get a little manspread on.
3: That's right they manspread they they alter their voice. They and and you you see them thinking about decisions they're making and it's like what would an alpha guy do right instead of so you'll say hey I'm gonna be a little bit late I'm running late and they're normally they'd be like oh it's okay they're like oh well since it's a woman telling me that and we're on a date I'm gonna be like whatever
2: and then yeah. it's like
3: you know so they're trying to put on this social mask and that that's not necessarily their fault I get it it being yeah. an alpha quote unquote alpha jerk. Seems in a way more fun more interesting and higher social value than being a pushover But it has just the same set of problems with a different shade of paint on them And so I think that there's a movement now where a lot of guys are like okay being a pushover didn't work But being this fake alpha jerk isn't really working for me either and the problem is you end up with this split We've got a split where guys go screw it. I don't know what the hell to do. I give up which is not good, Yeah, and then you have this other split where there's guys that are trying to become more self-actualized, which are the guys that are listening to this show and the guys that listen to the Jordan Harbinger show. And those guys, they look at this stuff and they go, okay, these two forks in the road, this is a false dichotomy. These are not my only two options. And so they start listening to shows like yours and mine, and they want to learn skills. They want to learn... You know, I'll be interviewing a general. How do you make tough decisions? I'll be interviewing a, a CIA agent. How do you read people? So there's a real, there's a place to gain real skills and real value and build a real skill set for yourself. And that is what makes you higher, quote-unquote, higher social value. It's not acting as if. It's, yeah. That stuff is all bunk. But I get why that's so tempting to guys in their 20s and 30s because we – didn't really grow up knowing what the hell we were supposed to do. And if you grew up around my time in 80, born in 80 or earlier, then you grew up where it was like one concept of a man. And then in the 90s, it was like kind of fading away. And then in 2000 and right now, you're just like, what the hell's going on? Yeah, yeah. Right. Times change normally, but I feel like they're changing a little bit faster in terms of gender roles. If you grew up in the 50s, you knew what was happening. Yeah. You know, yeah. you got it. You, men did this, women did that. I'm not saying we should go back to those times at, at all. But what I am saying is that it was a heck of a lot less confusing. And so w- things that are filling the gap for guys are not yeah. always healthy. And that's why I think what you're doing and frankly what I'm doing on the Jordan Harbinger show, that my mission is, and your mission are is important.
0: Yeah. How do you strike that balance between vulnerability and, like, projecting confidence, right? Like, whenever I speak to other young journalists who, like, hit me up for um, advice on, you know, how to, you know, advance in your career and how to, like, you know, uh, network well, you know, I, my, my first piece of advice is, you know, just be yourself, but, you know, you don't have to be an asshole to get ahead, basically. You know, like, you, right. like, you don't have to, you know, um, like... You know, cut people down. You don't have to like be a jerk in the workplace. Um, but I do think that there is kind of a, uh, especially like for you know, sensitive emotional guys like myself. Like <laughs> there's a balance that you you know you kind of have to you know kind of keep in mind to 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 maintain. To, to one, be likable, but also get people to take you seriously. So what, what what's your advice on that? Do you have any uh, on that? I point? do,
3: I do. This is a good question. It's something I've been thinking about a lot lately. So. There's a difference between the posturing and being strong, and then there's a difference between actually being strong. And, and, of course, this is sort of the faux alpha, false alpha concept that we mentioned earlier. And I'm trying to give a good example here. So let me think about this for a second because – all right. So here's something that I discovered by accident a long time ago. And this is a small example, and I'll stretch it out into a larger one. Yeah. So I went to law school at Michigan, and I, when I got there, I was like, oh, my God, everyone's so smart. They're going to find out I'm dumb and I don't belong here. You know, imposter syndrome, classic imposter syndrome. And it's something I discuss a lot on the show, imposter syndrome. It's actually a hallmark of high performers.
2: Mm-hmm. And what I
3: noticed was a lot of people would use these really big words. And naturally, it's a law class, so big words are important sometimes. But a lot of times, people just say things – that are using those words so that they sound smarter and it's intimidating but that's the intent so what i started doing instead of going crap i gotta google that oh crap i gotta google that what i would do in conversations with those people is say oh i don't know what that word means and they'd go oh and it for and somebody would like smirk and then i would go (laughs) do you know what it means and they'd be like uh, actually, no, and I'm yeah. like, oh, okay, right? Because they're like, oh, crap, he doesn't know what that word means. But I'd be like, do you know what that word means? And I'm not putting them on the spot. I just realize, wait a second, the intent of them using this is to get to, to show other people that they're so smart. So why don't instead of me pretending that I get it and I understand, why don't I just give them that? right and i'll say oh i don't know what that word means and they'll go oh super superfluous it just means like extra redundant and i'm like oh i guess i never heard that or maybe i have and i never knew what it meant and you can sort of smell or feel the relief from the other people in the conversation because not everybody knew what that meant and i went what if i extend this concept throughout everything that i'm doing in class so the teacher would say something the professor would say something and she would say okay does that make sense to everyone and i would be like I actually don't really understand that. Can you explain it like like I'm five? And everyone in the class is laughing, half of them at me, the other half going, that's a good idea, let's explain it like I'm five. So I became kind of well-known in law school and even at my law firm after that for asking people to explain things like I'm five. And even teachers would go, so for Jordan to explain it like you're five, it's yeah. this. <laughs> and I remember getting that reputation, and people would come up and go, that is so—I'm so glad that you're always the one that has the guts to answer these questions. Now, the reason that this is important is because this is vulnerability in its truest sense. So let me let me ask this. If you are talking with a Navy SEAL, Jocko Willink, right? He's like 225 pounds of muscle, jiu-jitsu, black belt, or something like that. Does he need to show you how tough he is, or do you just frickin' know already, right? Exactly. You just freaking know. Yeah, look
0: at him and, you can, and just know. You
3: can yeah. tell. <laughs> so a truly strong person, a truly strong man, physically or emotionally or intellectually, doesn't need to go around with their shield up and their sword drawn, so to speak. They can walk in, and they can actually drop the shield and sheath the sword and say, yeah, I don't really understand what we're talking about here maybe this is a little over my head. And some people, the insecure people, they're the ones who are going to be like, "Ooh, Jordan doesn't understand this concept. But the smart and secure people in the room go, oh, good. I'm glad you had the guts to ask the question because nobody else is asking. And I guarantee you that you're not the only one who doesn't understand. So the true strength, the true, true vulnerability comes from the I should say the true strength comes from the ability to lower the shield and be vulnerable. So don't try to make up for, if you're a journalist and you don't know what you're doing or you don't know how to get a source, don't hide that, not only from your superiors, but your colleagues, ask other people for help. Because I know that you think, oh, I, I can't show any weakness or I can't show that I don't know what I'm doing, but you will learn faster and build, you'll patch those weaknesses faster with vulnerability. Two, people can relate to you more. So if you seem bulletproof, people are like, ah, oh, I guess this guy's got it together. But if you go up to somebody who's one year your senior or one year your junior and you go, look, I'll, I got a confession to make. I'm not sure how to use this Nexus system because I'm, I'm totally not getting it. They go, oh, good. This is another person who has a flaw that I can relate to as a human. Right. So it humanizes you in a way. And so the insecure guy is the guy that goes, Psh, I get it, yeah, it's easy, bro. Everyone sees that man's insecurities. But if you're the person who can put that stuff out there and sh- and sh- really put your weaknesses almost on display, you become more relatable and you patch those weaknesses even faster and you don't have your ego protecting you, right? And that is a huge advantage to have in these types of situations. And so I think that's the difference. Now, there's a balance here, though. That is called authentic vulnerability. If you have... If you're trying to be strategic about it where you're like, hmm, let me open up this meeting by talking about some flaw that I have that's total BS that's (laughs) designed to make me look good or relatable, you don't want to do that either. So it has to actually be a real flaw, real vulnerability, real weakness. You don't want to be – I was at a dinner party recently, and the person who was having the party started with everyone – Let's go around the circle and share what our biggest fear is right now. And it was like, oh man, and you could tell you could tell some people weren't into it and it was this sort of forced rapport, forced vulnerability. And then when it got to the host, he was it was the thing he said was clearly this like rehearsed story about it was a rehearsed story about how he had this weakness that was turned into a strength and it was designed to elicit sympathy and all this stuff. And it just came across as ridiculously disingenuous and I think it backfired. And so for me, I really don't, I really don't like that. I feel like if you have an an authentic vulnerability that you can share and that you want to share you should but if you don't then you shouldn't try to force it for the sake of rapport it just doesn't work
0: i mean it's not yeah it's not something that can be like prompted right it can't be a prompted vulnerability or like a conscious you know uh openness you're trying to share in my experience you know relatability comes from just kind of being open and like casual conversation you know and like Letting your guard down, like you know, it's not like a. Um, it's more of a. To me, it's more of a passive um, act than a than a
3: proactive one. Yeah, I, th- I can understand that. And yeah. I think I think that has its place as well. Yeah.
0: Um, so I want to move on. you know, speaking of um, you know openness and vulnerability. You know, you've been very um, open on your show about uh, leaving the Art of Charm last year. Uh, the company that you shot it with, your brother AJ. Um, oh,
3: actually. AJ is not my brother.
0: Whoa, right? Wow. Okay. Yeah, I I had incorrect information on that.
3: No, no, it's okay.
0: <laughs> is it okay to, to talk about that? Uh, about his decision sure. to use your last name? Like what? Like, uh, so so that's crazy. So uh, so AJ is not your brother, but he used no. he uses your last name for branding purposes because you uh, started uh, you were kind of. I guess, the headliner of The Art of Charm.
3: Yeah, I can't totally speculate as to why he uses it, but I, w- I mean, I think you can draw your own conclusion probably from that, yeah.
0: So what's his real last name? <laughs>
3: his, his real last name is Kazurowski. So I can understand also not wanting to use that yeah. on the radio. <laughs>
0: uh, not super brandable. Um, yeah, that's that's surprising. So, So how did you... How did you, ha- let's chat about that whole situation briefly. I mean, I mean it clearly that it's a loaded situation. Just, you know, we just found out something here on, on, on air yeah. about it um, randomly. But if we can chat about it briefly, wh- what was at the, the heart of the split and, and what lessons are you taking from that situation into your future projects?
3: So the split was a difference in where the business should go, of course, and we had negotiated an amicable split and it didn't work out that way. Um, but now, you know, initially it was like this very traumatic, well, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? We have to start over. The amicable split didn't happen. So I have to start my show over again. And it actually four months later turned out to be the best thing that ever happened to me because I never would have had the guts to leave that company as toxic as it was for me and my team to be in it. And so it just from the differences when, where the branding was going and the, and sort of some of the internal stuff. And so I really am thankful that I got to leave. The way that it happened was not good. However, that's I think that's not only part of life, but it's part of being reborn in a way business-wise. And so being able to split and take all of the team, all of the relationships that I needed and that I'd made over the last 11 years, as well as all the skills that I'd built, was actually a huge advantage. It was kind of like getting... A hard reset on everything, except for now I know how to play the game. yeah, so it turned out that all of these things I thought I needed, like oh I need the brand recognition well I still have that? Well, I need the website, I didn't well, I need the you know the listener base they all moved you know to to the new show um, mostly. I didn't need any of that. What yeah. I needed was my relationships, my team, my skills, and my work ethic, and that is something that people can't actually take away from you.
0: Right. What advice would you give um, uh, a, another young entrepreneur who, you know, might be going through a similar thing with a co-founder or business partner? Like, How how do you kind of navigate that, that, that split, especially when it's like I imagine someone who you're close to? Um, you know, not your brother, obviously, but no. <laughs> not a family member, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, someone who you've like, you know, invested time and, uh, and relationships in, uh, and, uh, relationship, um, with. And, um, yeah, what, 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 would you say to someone else who's going through the same thing? Like, what's your advice to them?
3: So for me, it was a little bit easier, I think, than, than people probably think, because, I wasn't close with the other partners at the Art of Charm at all I had ceased to work with them in pretty much any capacity for years prior to leaving I basically just ran the show the products uh, sales I did a lot for the company but I didn't work with them directly which is so that was deliberate Um, and so I I, it wasn't like oh my gosh I'm losing my friends it was more like oh good I'm away from this particular situation so I think when people find the difficulty in a split, it's not just the business. They often feel rejected or they feel betrayed in some way. I really didn't have that problem. I expected probably nothing less from the people that I was dealing with at that time. So Mm. I, and and like I said, I was able to bring my whole team with me. Uh, So it was almost like, despite, Finding myself on the outside of the company, it was almost like they fired themselves in a way because I was able to f- start over with everyone and everything that I needed in order to rebuild, and that that actually worked out really well. And I don't mean I don't even mean to say anything negative about Art of Charm in general. I, I really, you know, obviously I learned a lot from doing it. I built a great business over there um, that served a lot of great people. But it wasn't a good fit for me, yeah. which is why I needed to leave and wouldn't have had the guts to do it myself. So yeah. I don't mean to come across as, like, any sort of bad-mouthing or anything. It was just when, when the puzzle, when the shoe doesn't fit, you know, it really doesn't fit. And when it's got tacks on the bottom, you know that you're long overdue. But yeah. I, th- as far as pu- signing blame or anything, I'm just as bad. As, as, Blameworthy for staying in as long as I did. Does yeah. that make sense?
0: Yeah, totally. And I don't, I, don't, I didn't take that as like you bad mouthing them. I, 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 do think there's right. a, a lesson there, in that, um, you know, when it's time for a situation to be up, like if you don't, if you don't move, like life will move you out of that situation. You know, definitely. Um. Uh, you know you mentioned earlier that um you know you did take most of your audience with you and you you know uh, the Jordan Harbinger show is like doing really well right now you're averaging a million downloads per episode i believe and you know and that's only 4 months after launching um which is amazing so how did how did you pull that off like how do you how do you generate the type of uh like consumer or in this case, listener loyalty, you know, um, that makes your audience follow you wherever you go.
3: Yeah, you know, uh, I'll get up-to-date stats here. It looks like the last 30 days, if this finishes loading, the last 30 days of the show alone, 2.7 million downloads. Yeah, so this is... And I'll tell you right now, the answer to the question is how to, how to get everyone to follow you around everywhere. Yeah, I am just as surprised as anyone else that the audience migrated so quickly. I'll, well, actually, I shouldn't say surprised as anyone else. When this all happened, I made a bajillion phone calls to everybody in the podcast space, everybody that I knew in the entrepreneur space that mm-hmm. that I could in the moment. I mean, I am talking within days. I called just dozens and dozens and dozens of friends of mine. And I was curious about What the heck was gonna happen and they all said look people listen to the show for you they're gonna follow you and i was like how do you know what do you how do you know it's gonna happen you know i had all these i guess you could say almost doubts is that um, is that
0: your crying voice
3: yes that was was my crying (laughs) voice exactly it's i had all these doubts and all this all this uncertainty and i even did a whole episode about uncertainty for the jordan harbinger show And people said, look, you're going to look back on this. It's going to be the best thing that's ever happened to you. You're going to get all this forward momentum. You're going to be free. It's going to be great. All these things you've been complaining about for the last couple years, these problems that you couldn't reconcile inside the old company, those are going to be set and fixed. You're going to have a clean slate. I didn't believe any of that. But now looking at the numbers, I go, oh, yeah, it's very, very clear that even though I'm still rebuilding and in hardcore rebuild mode right now, it's very clear that in a year or two or less – I'm going to be much further ahead than where I was after 11 years with the past company and yeah. that this was going to be something that I think was honestly uh, really a long, not only a long time coming but something that, that, that surprised me was that the audience largely migrated but also it wasn't just their loyalty to me personally or something like that. It was the fact that my team creates such good content that people – it's kind of like you can't really imitate it very yeah. easily. So it's hard to go, oh, well, I'll just find something else like this. I mean, I every single day even now, four-plus months later, there's a lot of email coming in and tweets coming in that say things like, hey, you know, I I just couldn't find you once you left the old show, and now that i found you here, I'm so glad because I haven't been able to find anything similar in between. So you have to be so good that people – not only can't ignore you be so good they can't ignore you but be so good that they can't replace you and I think that's part of what it is it's not just because I didn't get my social media accounts I didn't get my email list I didn't get my website people had to come and find me and they did but it was because they felt that something was missing yeah and that is that's important you know that's an important topic and an important subject and I think you have to be missable, if that yeah. makes sense.
0: No, totally, totally. Um, and and to me, that goes back to you know being yourself, so that you kind of create your own space. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to have a little a little fun here. Um, sure, you know, kind of switch it up, get a little uh, a little more light. Uh, <laughs> sure, um, sure, So just rock with me. So because you're an expert in like social skills and social engineering, I'm gonna give you. I'm gonna throw out a few common awkward situations that we sometimes find ourselves in professionally, and yeah. you tell me the best course of action off the top of your head. Like, in, I in, can try, and I yeah. may or may not have personal experience with somebody. Okay, Uh, (laughs) uh, so first one, so a colleague sends you a Facebook friend request, but you don't want to accept it. A week later in the office, they ask you about it. What do you say?
3: Well, for me, I'm pretty lucky because my Facebook is full, so I always have an excuse, but what I I wouldn't (laughs) lie, I'm not a fan of lying and saying, oh, my Facebook's full, can't do it. But what I would say is, hey, look, I try to keep my Facebook separate And the reason is because I've had bad experiences in the past adding work people to Facebook. But it doesn't mean we're not friends or something like that. You can text me anytime you want. You know, you have my phone number. But I always keep work stuff away from Facebook because I've heard too many horror stories. Now, if they can't accept that, that's fine. I think a lot of people can read between the lines or might even be slightly offended by that. But you know what? If you don't – if you really don't want them to see what you're posting – I would recommend either keeping them on a limited profile or not sharing certain things. I, I think for me, an indicator of something that you should never share on social media is something you're afraid of anybody finding. You know, And I know that sounds like common sense, but you'd be shocked at how many people will post something and then be surprised when HR finds it right, or right. surprised when their parents find it. Right. What is on there that's so bad that you can't have – That paste it on the front page of a newspaper. When I was an attorney, one of the things that was very commonly told to us was never send an email unless you'd want to see it reprinted on the front page of the New York Times. And the reason for that is things don't stay secret, even when they're intended to be secret. Social media is public. So anything you're posting on there that you don't want a work colleague to see, you should probably think twice about whether or not you should post it at all. all. Okay.
0: Rapid fire. Next question. So during a Mm -hmm. big meeting, a colleague takes credit for one of your ideas, which they shot down in a private brainstorm previously. What do you do?
3: So definitely not the place to confront them at that meeting. What I would do is go and talk to them about it privately and say, hey, you do realize that the idea that you gave was the idea I gave at another meeting. If they deny it, and they don't realize it and they don't seem to feel bad, you've got a problem. If they go, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry, I didn't even realize that, you're totally right, then what you could do is you could have them email the superiors or everybody at the meeting and BCC you or CC you on that. Or if they want to keep it on the low, if there's if there's a huge number of people, they're not going to do that, it's too embarrassing. But they could, they could reach out to a superior and say, FYI, This wasn't 100% my idea. You know, Jordan uh, had a big part of this, or Cal had a big part of this. I didn't really express that in the meeting, and I don't want to be looked at as taking credit for someone else's idea. That's a good way to do this. If, though, they're like, yeah, so what? Or they go, oh, well, no, it wasn't your idea. It was my idea. You've got a problem. And then what you can do is you can say, all right, I understand this, and you can tell your—if it matters, you can tell one of your immediate superiors, like, hey— I don't really know. And, and you shouldn't say, Cal took credit for my idea at the meeting. That just sounds whiny. But what you can do is you can walk into your superior's office and say, so I have a question. This is just a random work-related thing, but what would you do if you had a really good idea and someone else presented that idea in a meeting and took credit for it? Ask them in an in, in advice format because then you're not ratting the person out but that superior will probably know exactly what you're talking about. And they will also give you the proper advice. They might say, I would go to the manager and discuss that because that's not an acceptable way to do business here. Or they might say, you know what? We're all on the same page. It doesn't really matter who has what ideas. So I would say, don't worry about it. But everybody knows who those people are. Right. And then you're like, okay, got it. Right. So you get the bonus of being able to communicate that without being – a tattletale and looking like you're just trying to get attention. Right,
0: Cool, next question. Your team loves themselves a happy hour, but you don't really like to drink and at the end of the day, you just tired. You ain't got time, but soon you notice that you're getting left out of inside jokes and even getting fewer projects thrown your way. What do you do?
3: So this is a difficult situation because a lot of people are tired, they don't want to drink, so they don't want to do this. But what you have to realize is that you have a culture at work. And that culture says we go out for a drink on Thursdays after work or Thursdays and Fridays after work. That doesn't mean that you can opt out because you're tired. You, you can, but you're going to suffer those consequences because you're, you're going against the company culture. If everybody in your company group played badminton on Saturday morning – and you didn't want to because you weren't good at badminton, well, you're leaving yourself out of the group. You, you don't really... Your excuse might be valid, but it doesn't matter. The consequences don't care. So what I would do is I would show up every other week or so or every other time, every other session or so, once you can, every third even, and drink a seltzer water or Diet Coke. Just because you don't like to go out and have a drink doesn't mean that everyone else has to pretend you were there the whole time because you don't like alcohol. So... I know that's not a popular answer, and there's probably other people that are like, oh, I shouldn't have to go out and do this. It's antiquated, or it's, you know, it doesn't matter. The consequences really are yours alone. The group doesn't care if you're not there. You're the one who has to pay the price. So if you don't drink alcohol, nobody's going to force you to drink alcohol, but you should show up and have a good time anyway, and if you can't make it every time, that's fine. But just realize that by opting out of being social entirely, you are going to miss out on some things, and if that happens to spill over into your work, well, no big surprise.
0: Yeah, totally. Awesome. Well, you survived. <laughs> Thanks for yeah. humoring me with the rapid fire questions. Um, so I want to get to now what you have coming up next. So you've interviewed people from like uh, Shaq to Neil deGrasse Tyson to Russell Brand. Uh, what can you tell me about your slate for the rest of the year? I mean, I I, I did see uh, Millie Vanilli on your Twitter feed recently. <laughs>
3: yeah. Yes, you did. Oh man, I've got some awesome people lined up. I've got General McChrystal, Stanley McChrystal, coming back on the show. I've got Dennis Miller coming in. I've got a bunch of episodes on negotiation that I think are going to be great. I've got Adam Carolla, Dr. Drew coming through. Um, Senator Barbara Boxer, retired Senator Barbara Boxer, coming through. Uh, Dan Pink, who's a great author that I think probably your crew is familiar with. I have General Hayden, former head of the CIA, NSA, coming through. And uh, that's just a sample. I also have uh, I also have some pretty interesting folks like Steve Aoki that are getting scheduled that are a little bit outside my normal. Charlemagne the God's coming through. He's one of your peeps out in New York. Yeah, so yeah. There's just a lot of good people that I have that I'm, I'm really excited for the rest of the year.
0: That's great. You also tweeted recently, and this kind of made me chuckle, um, that you had accidentally worked out with a picture of your Apple Watch uh, right. ha- having recorded a grand total of one exercise minute. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, and I could definitely empathize because the struggle is real over here. Uh, <laughs> uh, what's your fitness life really like? Do you have any hacks and or, or, or tricks to kind of get yourself in, in, in a space where you can like enjoy going to the gym?
3: yeah you know what i actually do work out regularly another thing that i've started doing is well first of all i treat my workouts like business meetings i think a lot of people they treat it like their lunch hour where they go oh i don't have time so i got to work through lunch today and they do that four days a week and they go i never have time to work out <laughs> you got to treat it like a meeting
2: yeah. i wouldn't
3: just not show up to this recording right that's not that doesn't make sense yeah. just like i'm just gonna i'm gonna go to the gym in an hour because it's a meeting, it's an appointment. My assistant knows not to schedule anything over it. I don't schedule things over it, et cetera. The other thing is uh, when I do phone calls, when I I read my books, so I do a lot of audio books to prepare for the show, because every guest I read their book, I do like six to eight hours of prep for each interview, I will do that while walking outside instead of just sitting around or laying down or something like that. So not only do I create my prep time and turn that into a light workout because it's a walk or a jog, but I'm able to get to the gym regularly because I treat it like a meeting. And I think for if you're an entrepreneur and you're not treating the gym like a meeting, it's gonna end up being the last priority yeah. because you're gonna go, but I gotta build my business. And if you're not treating the gym, and, or if you're not finding other ways in which you can, let's say, work out while working, then you should look for those ways. So for example, if you're doing audiobooks, you're doing some reading, try to do it while you're moving on the treadmill while you're walking, on yeah. the exercise bike, etc. And you'll find you have a lot more time in your day than you think. I've even seen people answering emails on exercise bikes. I don't think I could do that, but it sure is possible. <laughs> yeah. I definitely do a lot of email while I'm out walking too. Yeah,
0: cool. Uh, so final question, what's the one thing our listeners can do today, It uh, can be a thought and action that you think could radically change their perspective on navigating their lives and careers successfully?
3: Look, so I think relationships are the most important thing. If I had not been, if I hadn't spent eleven plus years building relationships, I wouldn't have been able to start over with the incredible way that I have. Yeah. And the way to do that is to dig the well before you're thirsty. Don't procrastinate. Don't think, yeah, I got to get my business going. I got to get that going. Dig the well. Create those relationships before you need them. Um, other things are. Make a list right now of the 10 or so people that you would reach out to if your business imploded or if you lost your job and then reach out to those people now when you don't have an agenda and you don't need anything specifically because what the problem is, is people go, Oh shoot, I just, I need a new job now or I need my business has this problem. What do I do? Then it's awkward because you're reaching out to people and you're going, Oh man, I haven't talked to this guy in three years and now I need him for something. Create and reactivate those relationships now before you need something and then when you do need them, it's not awkward. Um, another thing that I do every day, I scroll to the bottom of my phone on the text message app, and those are the people that I haven't texted for a really long time. Send five or so people a re-engagement text that says like, hey, man, it's been a long time. I haven't spoken to you in a million years. What's the latest with you? No rush on the reply. I know everyone's busy. And then you sign it with your name. You sign That's it correct. with your name so you don't get the like new phone who dis. And yeah. you do this every day. <laughs> And people will start to reply. It takes minutes. But then when you have this big network, and it's active. People start staying top of mind. You start getting opportunities and things like that. And I have a lot of tactics and tricks like this that I spend a lot of time talking about and teaching. In fact, if you go to Advanced Human Dynamics, I've got a level one class. And that is all of these little tricks like texting people, creating that list, reengaging using social media. And that will change the way that you do business forever.
0: That's great thank you so much for that uh the, all this great advice jordan um and thank you so much for taking time to to chat with us uh at live from the bar cart at one thirty-seven p.m sure sure so yeah folks that was jordan harbinger you can listen to his podcast the jordan harbinger show after this one but before you switch over uh brian spoke to the legendary restaurant tour, danny meyer And if you've
1: ever had a Shake Shack burger, you have him to thank. He is the legendary restaurateur and he is the CEO of the Union Square Hospitality Group. We talked about a cocktail that he named after his father called the Mortoni. Uh, You'll have to listen to the podcast to get those ingredients. We talked about his new restaurants that are opening up. And we talked about failing because he's failed in his career. His father's failed in his career. And we wanted to know what you learned from that. So let's take a listen. Danny Meyer, welcome to the 137 p.m. Live from the Bar Cart podcast. Thanks, Brian. Guess what? We're both Midwesterners. You're from Missouri and I'm from Nebraska. But we're sitting here right now in New York City, just in case the people out there don't know. And I just wanted to propose a toast to us.
2: Cheers. Here's to the
1: Midwest. Cheers to the Midwest. And I want to, I brought up your roots because... Here at one thirty-seven p.m., we're big into origin stories and learning from people's past failures that made them successful today. So I want to start there. Um, can you talk to me a little bit about some setbacks you've had in your life or setbacks from other people you've watched and what you've learned from those experiences?
2: I, well, I kind of feel like life is one setback after another. Now, you may say, what are you talking about? You've lived a charmed life and I think the fact that you and I are sitting here today means we probably, in the aggregate, have lived a charmed life. But I also think that the human condition is one of setbacks and loss. And it could be, in my case, being 0 for 3 in terms of being accepted to colleges. Um, And, you know, I think that the way to look at setbacks is that. They are the prototypical wave in the ocean. There's always going to be another one. You just don't know how big it's going to be, how small it's going to be, what the shape is, what the timing is going to be. And then I think the real question is, what are you going to do with that setback? Because I know this is completely cliche, but if it if it didn't kill you, it probably taught you something.
1: Definitely. And one of my favorite quotes I, I've out I've never there. been
2: killed by one yet, knock <laughs> on wood.
1: That's so true. And I think... Some of that mindset of yours, you learned a bit from your father. Um, he, uh, You talked in past interviews about his, um, his bankruptcy and how what you learned from that evolved over the years. Can you talk a little bit about that?
2: Well, sure. I think that when any of us grows up, or at least most of us, the two people we look up to more than anyone are a mom and dad, if we're fortunate enough to have a mom and dad. And... You know, we take our lessons from them, we idolize them, idealize them, neither of which is probably a very healthy thing to do, but it's a a typical thing. And I totally looked up to my dad growing up, and it was a really crushing blow for me to watch his uh, company go bankrupt and to have him tell the whole family about it and to realize my dad has clay feet. I never thought that before. So what do you do with that? That wasn't my personal setback, but it sure felt worse than any setback I had ever had. I think I think I did learn a lot of lessons, but for years I didn't. For years I assumed, well, I guess I'm going to turn out like my dad. I guess I'm going to go bankrupt. I guess I'm going to have colleagues in my company that, that don't help me succeed, that, that might turn their back on me and i I realized at a certain point, and unfortunately, it took till my dad died to liberate myself and realize I'm not my dad. I have surrounded myself with amazing people on my team, and furthermore, that uh, that some of the lessons that I learned watching him were actually making me stronger, for example, um I always thought that. He had overexpanded, and it was his expansion that led to his bankruptcy. And so I just didn't expand. I didn't open a second restaurant for 10 years. And just to put that in perspective, Shake Shack this year alone will probably open a new restaurant every 25 days or so, So or more. So I think what's interesting is that you should feel your feelings Um. I think the feeling I wish I had not felt was shame. I think shame is a completely nonproductive feeling to feel. I was ashamed that my dad, who I had looked up to, had a business that went out of business mm-hmm. and that a whole lot of people lost their jobs. And I feel like what I've done with that shame over all these years is realize, number one, it's not mine, it's his. And number two, I'm going to build a, a business that's, based on the strongest possible foundation with the strongest possible colleagues. And the biggest thing I think I learned was instead of hiring people whose primary job was to make me feel better about myself, I like to hire people who challenge me because they're way better than I am at just about everything.
1: That's great. And I love that you mentioned that you need to be in tune with your emotions. I want to go back to 1985 when you opened um, Union Square Cafe. That was your first restaurant you opened. What were you feeling? that? Do you remember what you were feeling that day? Tell me those feelings. Yeah, I was
2: feeling dread. <laughs> <laughs> I'll never forget, as long as I live. I, I could be wrong about this, but the two times I cried my eyes out at Union Square Cafe, the first Union Square Cafe, were the day we opened, mm-hmm. October 21st, 1985. I opened up that door, and I was like, Jesus, you actually did this? Do you realize what's going to happen next? And I, of course, I had no idea what was going to happen next, but I knew it was going to be a lot of work. Mm -hmm. And the other time was the day we closed Union Square Cafe in December of uh, 2016. And it, I was crying my eyes out because I thought that could be 30 years was a great run. But what if the next one never opens which thankfully it did yep. but but yeah, no, I remember that day almost like it was yesterday I had absolutely no idea that there would ever be a second restaurant, never mind nine restaurants, 15 restaurants, 100 restaurants never dawned on me, I just knew that this was this entrepreneurial itch that I had to scratch getting that restaurant open and and I did it but I realized that As momentous as it felt to have actually conceived it and gotten it built and designed and found the right location and all that kind of stuff, now you got to live with it, and it better be good. Early on in my career, I looked up to a number of restaurateurs. You have to understand, I was never a chef. I was always a restaurateur. And while today I think chefs are are more likely to be celebrities than restaurateurs. I It's it's not that I was ever looking up to the celebrity of restaurateurs, but I looked at people who actually ran restaurants on a daily basis. And it was folks like the Four Seasons here in New York, Alex von Bitter, um, who was working with two older guys at the time. Um, I looked at uh, Andre Soltner, who was a chef restaurateur of Lutece, and what all these people had in common was that they were at their restaurant every single day. Um, in the case of Andre Soldner, he lived upstairs from his restaurant. And I actually took my cues from them. You know, I I would um, make sure that Union Square Cafe was closed for two weeks every single summer just so I could take a vacation. Mm-hmm. That's unheard of today. Yeah. We didn't open on Sundays uh, for many, many years because I didn't want to be away from the restaurant for two consecutive days. That's unheard of these days, in New York anyway. But really for the first 10 years of my career, and I'd say even thereafter, when we had two restaurants with Gramercy Tavern added in, and then 11 Madison Park and Tabla, um, and even after that blue smoke opening and Shake Shack, I managed to be in every single restaurant, every single lunch, every single day of the week because they were all so close by to one another. That was my strategy. And I could smell what was right and wrong about the restaurant, see it, feel it. I could look at our dining room full of guests, and I could almost tell you more about what the kitchen was doing without even walking into the kitchen. I could look at our staff members and tell you more about how they were being led or not at that particular time.
1: Being in the trenches is so important. I was about to say some of my best bosses in my career have all – been through the paces, and are there side-by-side with you going through your daily grind, and that's always been something that I admired in my bosses, and so that's really cool that that's something you've always believed in
2: and learned from with your mentors. I sometimes wish I could be that guy again on the front door of Union Square Cafe every single meal. So you're the head honcho of
1: Union Square Hospitality Group, which means... You have Shake Shack, you have Gramercy Tavern, Blue Smoke, Marta,
2: Porchlight, and many others. Um, just, and just so your listeners are clear, we founded Shake Shack, and I'm the chairman of Shake Shack, but it is now a separate yes. uh, public company. Yes. So it's not part of Union Square Hospitality Group. Got it. But it still calls home for Thanksgiving. <laughs>
1: and, but there's one component of Union Square Hospitality Group I don't think gets enough talk. Um, and that's the Union Square events. Can you tell us a little bit more about what that is and why it's important to? Well, I,
2: th- I think you're right about that. Um, Union Square events probably doesn't get as much talk. It, it happens to be our largest business. Yeah. It's a, but it's a business a lot of people don't know we have because it's a B two B business primarily. It's, um, it's a fantastic group of people who um, are like magicians. They are cooking food at ballparks, like City Field, like Washington Nationals Park, Houston, they're in Las Vegas, um, Saratoga Racetrack. So if you've ever had Shake Shack or Blue Smoke or El Verano tacos or box frites at a ballpark or a racetrack, those are the guys doing it. The other thing is that you may or may not know, but they produce a lot of the food for Delta Airlines in first class going on ever, almost every single flight that goes to Europe and almost every single flight that goes to the West Coast uh, from here in New York City. They also produce huge events um, that we're really proud of. The Whitney Museum Gala, the Museum of Modern Art Party in the Garden, food that I would be proud to serve you in my own home. All right. really, really proud of what those guys do. And usually people pay a lot of money to go to these events and they say, that was okay for a big party. Well, we don't subscribe to that. Our belief is if you have to put in that denominator for a big party, mm-hmm. you shouldn't be hiring us. We should, we should ace it no matter what. So that's, that's a lot of what Union Square Events does. That's really cool. So
1: what's next for you professionally? What, what, what's opening up? What's new?
2: Well, we're opening Tacosina, which is a taco stand right on the riverbank of the East River in a brand new park, which is called Domino Park and it sits right in front of the old domino sugar factory which is being refurbished to be an amazing office and living and entertainment lifestyle area in Williamsburg in Williamsburg and and Sina will be the first to open Tacosina is going to be our uh, attempt to create a place number one that you want to hang out and be with your friends um and you know watch the world go by watch the boats go by watch the weather happen Um, but really, really wonderful tacos. And the chef is a woman by the name of Barbara Garcia, who is from outside of Mexico City originally, but we've had the chance to work with Barbara, who was most recently a sous chef at Union Square Cafe. Mm. I'm really excited about the simple, but I think really delicious and satisfying menu there. She's going to own her
1: venue. I'm definitely going to come visit. I live a few blocks away from that park, so I'll visit you and Barbara.
2: And then we're opening something that we've never done before, a high-altitude restaurant. And the restaurant is called Manhattan. Um, It is at 28 Liberty Street at the very, very bottom of the island of Manhattan, which years and years ago was called Manhattan, Mm -hmm. um, which means Island of Hills. And it's on the 60th floor of this building. It used to be David Rockefeller's office. Um, It's got commanding views You get out of the elevator And the first thing you see is a bar But there's no back bar And the reason there's no back bar Is that it's a wall of windows Opening Manhattan to the north, Brooklyn To the east And New Jersey to the west And you, you basically see everything And then in back of this Or actually adjacent to it Is the restaurant, Manhattan And what we're trying to do with both the bar and the restaurant at Manhattan is to go counter to what I've always seen growing up, which is the higher you get altitude wise, the more fancy and mm-hmm. you know, kind of distant the restaurant gets. We're not trying to compete with the view. We're actually challenging ourselves to open a down to earth restaurant in a high altitude spot and and ask ourselves, how can we create a restaurant and bar that you would have gone to even if it was down a dark alley somewhere? Mm-hmm.
1: I like that. I like that vibe.
2: All right, Danny. So I'm drinking a martini right now. What's your favorite cocktail? Well, while you're drinking that martini, I got to say my favorite cocktail is the Mortoni. And I named it after my dad, Morton Meyer, who we talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. Every single night, I would see him come home from work. He would either drink one of three drinks, and I found them all disgusting. One was Pernod with a splash of water which looked like this milky, licorice mess. The other, which wasn't that bad, but I, I didn't get it, was white port. The third one was a Negroni. Hmm. And I always wanted to like the Negroni, but I can't drink gin. I had one bad night with it in high school. <laughs> I don't like vermouth. Okay, But I decided to name a drink after my dad, Morton Meyer in honor of that, but in the way that I actually wanted it. And so I made it the Mortoni. And it is one part vodka, one part Campari. And you shake those two together, equal parts over ice, a little bit of citrus juice if you want before you start shaking. Then you strain it into a glass and you can have it up or on the rocks. It's up to you. And you top it with the last third, so an, an equal part, same amount as you did the vodka and Campari, an equal part tonic water. Okay. Obviously, you don't want to be shaking the tonic water with there. You're yeah. going to have a big mess in your kitchen. <laughs> but I find that, especially in the summer, it is the most refreshing drink, and you just feel great while you're drinking it.
1: Well, I have all those ingredients at home. So Please I'm definitely try a more, try Tony, it and honor, think of me when you yes, have it. In honor of you and your father. Thanks, Danny. Thanks, Brian. We just heard Danny talk about his new taco joint, and now I'm hungry. But before I head there, let's talk about our latest launch.
0: Yeah, at the end of each episode, we're going to talk about what you need to keep your eye out this week to own or celebrate your moment. And that can either be a new album, a new
1: sneaker, a new way to get a promotion.
0: That's right. If Beyonce just drops an album in the middle of the night... Which she's known to do. Yeah. Oh, I still we'll, remember we'll that. We'll just tell you preemptively just in case. <laughs> <laughs> and now, here's your latest launch.
2: Ignition sequence back.
0: Today,
1: we're going to start with Tiara Wack. She just released this awesome visual album. Think Beyonce's visual album. Mm. Remember that? I do remember that. All right. So this is a shorter version of that. Every song is only 60 seconds long. And she created a mini music video for each one to kind of represent the different styles of the music in each song. So there's R&B, there's rap, there's hip hop. And what's cool about Tierra Wack? she's 22. And I think she's doing something really innovative with this really short 15 minute album with a visual that's also 15 minutes long. Like she is doing something that is going to stand out above all these men that are also trying to do something.
0: My latest launch is iOS 12. Uh, Apple announced it at its WWDC conference recently. Um, You know, it's a lot of new features and bells and whistles. To me, the best feature on um, the new iOS 12 platform is Screen Time. And Screen Time basically tells you how you are using your iPhone. It breaks it down into different categories. Uh, are you using social media apps, you know, 30% of the time? Are you using entertainment apps? your Netflix and chilling, like, you know.
1: I mean, I'm afraid to use that. I'm afraid to look at what it's going to tell me. Because it's going to tell me I'm just scrolling through Instagram constantly or well, on Spotify too I much.
0: I think that's kind of the point, Brian.
1: Yeah? What, what, what do you think it's going to tell you? <laughs>
0: Um, actually right now it might tell me that I'm, you know, using dating apps too much. Oh, Because okay. I just recently rejoined Tinder. You probably
1: but. swipe left <laughs> 80% of the day?
0: <laughs> now that would be cool if they could tell me that. <laughs> I, w- I wouldn't how know. Much, how much I swipe left versus right. Um... No, I'd probably be embarrassed to learn that. (laughs) Please, Apple, please don't put that in the the screen time feature. (laughs) The next latest launch is
1: for television. We are going to start watching Queer Eye Season 2. We just watched the trailer, and the new season drops this week. We are so excited. Why did you like Season 1?
0: I think uh, the reason that Season 1 resonated with a lot of people, they went the extra level uh, of making you know the queer eye guys and the people they were making over from like different political backgrounds and different geo- geographical backgrounds and i think that was very powerful to see like so many like bonds and friendships being made across those kinds of lines so i'm really looking forward to season two
1: and that was latest launch where
0: we talked about the new album from TR Wack called Wack world And iOS 12, which uh, is available for developers this week and soon for the general public.
1: And Queer Eye Season (laughs) 2.
0: Yep. I can't wait to binge it. I watched the first season in one sitting, and I'm pretty sure that you're going to watch Season 2 in one sitting, too.
1: And we want to know what you guys are watching, binging, listening to, or trying out in the world. So leave a comment and let us know what we should review on our next episode.
0: Yeah, we're always looking for new stuff To not only enjoy ourselves But also to talk about here at 137 PM
1: That's it for 137 PM I'm Brian Anthony Hernandez You can follow me on all social platforms At Ba Journalists
0: Ba like the sheep, that's right And I'm JJ McCorvey You can follow me on Twitter At JJMCCORVEY Blocked (laughs) (laughs) Unfollowed Reported. <laughs> so good. Oh man, come on. Follow me on Twitter at JJ McCorvey M C C O R V E Y. I'll see you there. Follow 137 p.m. on Instagram at O-N-E number three number seven PM.
1: Do it now. And also on Twitter at the number one number three number seven PM. And remember, if you want to own your future, start this minute. That was 1.37 p.m. Live live from from the the Bar Cart. cart. See you next week.
2: 1.37 p.m. Live from the Bar Cart is a Gallery Media production.